is Kelsey, and I am a part of the Misty Way community group. And I'm going to be reading this morning from 1 Samuel 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him, and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Christ Central. My name is Josh Kim. I am um, assistant pastor here at Christ Central Church, and we want to welcome you again for joining us online as we worship the Lord and we praise God for allowing us together like this and for you to be able to worship at home. And just want to let you know that many of our students are back in school. 
And um, I know it's hard. It's been very difficult this week uh, for all of us. And I know we're tired from watching the computer screen and um, trying to deal with or just keep up with the demands of online schooling for a lot of us. And I uh, just want to let you know that we are praying with you, praying for you. And for many teachers that are laboring behind the scenes too, we pray for you, remember you during this time. Uh, let's continue to pray for one another as we wrestle in this time together as a body of Christ. Um, we're continuing our sermon series in 1 Samuel 28 as we begin the fall season. In many ways, it's a ministry launch here as we uh, talked a lot about men's ministry, women's ministry, community group ministry. Uh, there are a lot of things coming at your way, um, kind of coinciding with the school launch for a lot of our students. So we want to encourage you. We, don't, we, don't, we do know that we're not gathering in person, but we want to encourage you to continue to gather with one another. Do not give up meeting with one another, as Bible urges us, as we gather to encourage one another, especially during times like this, so that we can be a body of Christ, not only cares for our own well-being, but to encourage one another as we build what it means to be the body of Christ here in this city, here in our hometown, in our homes, wherever you may be. So I want to encourage you again from our church to get involved and share with us, pray with us. Let's wrestle in this together as we wait, anticipate what God is going to do, even during this difficult time, difficult season of our church in the lives of many people. So please, I urge you um, to hang in there with us, wrestle with us, and pray through this time together. As we turn to 1 Samuel chapter 28, we come to a very familiar text, again, a story of David and Saul. And today's text deals with Saul's ultimate failure and demise. It's debatable that he is the first one to actually set this, but yet often attributed to Winston Churchill, when he remarked, history is written by the victors. History is written by the victors. What he or the original author is implying is that the history or how history is told and taught is often conveyed from someone who is in power, who actually won the battle, therefore able to control the narrative of the history. What is not debatable is this is often true. We often practice this in our daily lives. For example, NBA playoffs are often running, and one of the main attractions are Lakers versus Rockets. And in covering this story, there was a recent ESPN article that highlighted James Harden, one of the players for Rockets, and his failures as a player. Mind you, James Harden is a former MVP a game changer at that in many regards, but only remembered for his failures on the grand stage of playoffs. Furthermore, I remember as a high school student reading a book titled Lies My Teacher Told Me, as assigned by my high school history teacher, and I was blown away by atrocities of Christopher Columbus and the lack of teaching on the horrors of slavery there was nowhere to be found in our state-sanctioned textbook. This groundbreaking book's focus is that, again, history is often taught from the winner's side or those with authority and power and often told in the wrong way. And how often this is true of us, especially during these days in our nation's life. We're unpacking what we were taught. And as many of us are learning and relearning for the first time, or learning to read correctly for the first time, our history when it comes to the history of racism. But the question today is, what about the Bible? Does the Bible pass that test? Many critics of the Bible often point at the Bible and say, we put the Bible we must put the Bible under the same examination. Is the scripture, the word of God, written from only winner's perspective? Is it only told from the victors only? And what about the first Samuel? Because as we read thus far in first Samuel, 
there is a clear loser in this chap in this verses in chapters, and also there's a clear winner in these chapters as well. And I'm talking about the Saul, the fallen king, and David, the coming king. And when we get to chapter 28, we have this thematic shift where the story that began with Samuel is moving from Saul and now to David. And as Pastor Howard mentioned last week, the greatest king outside of Jesus himself is in the focus of 1 Samuel 27 and 28 here. And we get a hint of David becoming this great king coming all the way back in the beginning chapters. So we could even say the history, the story of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it's told from this great king that is coming, from a victor who is going to come and be a good king. And this chapter gives us the perfect chance to put the written by the victor's concept to the test. Because the chapter begins by putting our hero, David, in a tough spot. We could read chapter 28 last week, and we see that David is living as outcast in the land of Philistine, and his cunning ways of pillaging the Philistines and not fighting against his own people while seeking refuge in the land of Philistines is now this gig is about to be foiled. That's what we find in verse, verse 1 of chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know that your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. And the question for us is, what would David do? Will he fight his own people? Would he go against what the king of Israel is supposed to do? But before we get to answer the question, all of a sudden the chapter shifts its focus now onto Saul again by saying in verse 3, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. And the rest of this chapter covers Saul's folly, his failure again. Some commentators will argue and say, yes, David is in trouble. Oh boy, but look at Saul, he's in bigger trouble. Look at David, who is in harsh circumstances, but look at Saul, that's worse than what David is doing. And commentators will argue back and forth by saying, look at Saul's bad Saul and look at good David. But is that what this is all about? Is this what chapter 28 is pointing us at? Looking at the winner, David, and loser, Saul. Let's unpack that a little bit more as you look at Saul, the loser, David, the winner, and who is really telling this story of redemptive history. First thing we find in this chapter is that Saul is a definitely a loser in this battle. Saul is a loser in this battle. Speaking of school, as a high school student, I remember this one time I woke up from a long, long sleep and had a great idea. Great, great idea. I was tired. My parents left for work early, and I thought, I need a break today. I deserve a break today. So I thought, I'll call myself out of school. So I picked up my phone, of course, and I said, in the most serious voice tone I could ever imitate of my father, and said, Josh is out sick today. And I just hung up, thinking, I got this. Not only did I manage to get myself out of school, but I did it legally by imitating my father. And I was feeling good about myself, thinking, wow, I'm good at this. I'm going to call my friends and call them out so we could all have good, taste, good time together. And of course, at that moment, my phone rang. And I picked up. And without thinking, I said, this is Josh. And then they said, this is so-and-so from school. I'm calling to see if he's sick, really sick or not. And what often do people do when they get caught like this? 
Did I confess and said, I am so sorry, I'll be at school in five minutes? Of course not, right? I dug a little deeper, and I said, oh, um, actually, yeah, this is uh, uh, not Josh, but Josh's father. Uh, he, he's sick. Uh, he's not feeling well. He's got something. I don't know what it is. And I kept digging myself deeper and deeper and deeper until my father was called out of work to call into the principal's office. Digging yourself into a deeper hole is exactly what Saul is doing in chapter 28. We find that Saul is in a bind here, and we've seen this coming, right? We see Saul, who was once described as someone head and shoulders above all the other Israelites, who was so impressive in many regards, is nowhere to be found in this chapter. Rather, what we find is this chapter is a shell of a man, someone who is deathly afraid of an enemy he's supposed to fight and overcome. Saul is left all alone, the Bible tells us. Countless times we've seen this Saul fail and fail, and he gets to this point. In chapter 28, we're told that Saul is facing a familiar foe. Verse 4 says, The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all the Israelites, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Remember back when Philistines were first introduced as an enemy of the Israelites? We were told that the Philistines were more technologically advanced than Israelites, meaning they had more advanced fighting weapons. Mainly, they had chariots. Chariots for ancient Near East meant they had tanks. They got the tanks coming your way. Thus far, we haven't seen much of the chariots during the battle, but this battle that's described in verse 4 is not a mere border skirmish or a hilly territory fight. This place with Shunem and Gilboa is an open plain. This is going to be a big mano a mano open field, come at you with all your stuff, the best, best that you got. At the end of it, one of us will die kind of battle. Therefore, Saul is deathly afraid for sure. And one can say that, well, Israelites never really had technology to begin with, right? It's not like they had great tanks or whatever maybe to defeat Philistines again and again. What uh, the Israelites actually had was they had better players. They had better personnel. They had better generals. Other teams had all the latest gear, but the Israel had best fighters. But remember what happened in chapter 27? David, their best fighter, who just by appearing onto the battlefield put fears in the hearts of the Philistines, now plays for the other team. But the biggest loss, bigger loss than David for Saul is told to us in verse 3. It says, now Samuel had died. This is reiteration of what we already know from chapter 25, but this is shown to emphasize again that Samuel, Saul's guide, friend, mentor, one who still mourned for Saul is dead. And if that is not enough, all the more, God is silent with Saul. Verse 6, when Saul inquired of the Lord, and this is a scary verse, church, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Scary place to be. So what does Saul do? Thus far, he is the definition of what not to do. And surely here's another chance. But what does Saul do? He digs himself further into his own hole by finding a medium. Now the rest of the story of 28 follows Saul's failed attempt to gain God's counsel and spectacular ways in how he lies, how he deceives, he ultimately breaks his own decree in a desperate attempt to survive this impending doom. And when Medium is able to summon dead Samuel, he merely confirms what we all have been suspecting since Saul blatantly disobeyed God all the way back in chapter 13. 
the kingdom will be torn out of Saul and given to David, and Saul will die in the battle. And I know many of us have questions as we're reading, as Kelsey was beautifully reading this uh, chapter for us, about how in the world is death Samuel can come alive. That doesn't make any sense to us, right? Or someone might say that this is a devil pretending to be like Samuel. But you know, the scripture doesn't really seem to focus on explaining all the details of how this is possible. But we get from the narrator of this story that, in fact, this is real Samuel who by God's decree is allowed to come and give this final verdict to Saul. So for all it's worth, Saul actually gets what he wants, right? He wanted to hear from Samuel. He wanted to hear from God. He gets both. However, the message is not what he wants to hear. Because as Samuel tells him again, he is merely repeating what Saul already knows. Again, that fact alone shows Saul really is not interested in seeking God to be in God's counsel, to turn towards him, to seek him for repentance, no matter how flawed his methods are. Not only is he seeking for God's favor to use him for his own gain, you can see that when God says you will not survive this, his posture is not repentance, rather continual faith fear. And church, how often do you and I do this? Right? Yes, there are times when you and I don't really know what God wants us to do. I get that. But most of the time, I bet 99% of the time, it's not that we don't know what God wants us to do. I think we really know what God wants us to do. As my pastor once told me, what God wants you to do is written in the scripture. Like 98% of that. You wrestle with the 2% of unknown. Like, focus on the 98%. The question is, we know what God wants for us in our lives. We know that God wants us to love God first, foremost, and love others sacrificially. We know that God wants us to lay down our lives, our desires, our hopes for God's kingdom. We know that God wants us to give generously. We know that God wants us to live for the sake of others. We know that God wants us to love others. We will know all these things. We know all these things. But the question is, do you want to do that? Right? It's not that you don't know what God wants for you. We know that we're supposed to love our spouse. We know we're supposed to lay down our life for others. We know that we're supposed to lose so that others will gain. We know we're supposed to consider others better than ourselves. But the question is, do you want to do that? We don't want to. You know what we do? And we pray, 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 hoping that God will say, go ahead, do whatever you want. Because you want to be free from the conscience of doing the wrong thing. Interestingly enough, in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13, 14, um, verses 13 and 14, the chronicler writes, So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. And it goes on to say, he did not seek guidance from the Lord. Though he wants to hear from God, he does not want to obey God's commandment. It is understatement to say that Saul is the loser here. He does not lose his life here just yet. But the separation from God itself is highlighted here. And it denotes Saul's ultimate downfall. In many regards, the verse 15 of this chapter as one of the most scariest verses in all of the scripture that makes us tremble in fear. As Samuel says to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? God has turned away from you. Samuel says, Saul says, sir, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answered me no more either by prophets or by dream. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. There's a lot to unpack here, and we can see very clearly, do not be like Saul, right? Don't use God or even try to use God. Don't dig uh, your hole deeper. Don't be like Saul, because Saul is definitely a loser here. He had multiple chances to repent, redeem, and turn, but he refused he misdirected his hope, even the most desperate times. And oh, how 
depressing, depressing Saul's life can be. And again, how often are you and I like Saul? How often have you and I failed in our own pride? How often you and I only relied on our own thinking, own logic, in our desire to blaze our own path, only to realize that you and I cannot? Maybe we have not gone to the mediums or idols to supplement what we're missing just yet. Perhaps you feel lost this morning, disconnected from God, and it's tempting. Oh, it's tempting to turn to other means to get some kind of comfort, pleasure, and peace of mind. And surely you and I all have been places of Saul, desperate, disguised, fallen in sin. But church, this is grace, isn't it? Saul does not turn towards God even in the desperate moments. He doesn't truly turn towards God in the most needed moments of his life. But this is grace because in Christ, for you and I, we can turn to the Lord. God has fought the impossible fight by sending his son to die on the cross for you. The battle is already won. So the invitation this morning is just that. The grace is available for us. Don't be like Saul in that be desperate and turn to your own ways furthermore. Come turn in repentance. You don't need a medium. You don't need any other idols. You only need Christ and Christ alone because he alone can change and deliver you. That's the grace this morning. Come with an open heart. Do not harden your heart. You can turn to the Lord. You can come in repentance. And we could end at that too and say, praise the Lord. Let us not be like Saul, but turn to the Lord in repentance. And as we do that this morning, and that is there, I want us to go a little bit deeper as we look at the victor, David, in contrast. Because as we survey a little bit more, go deeper, I think there's a little bit more for us this morning than that. There's a little bit more than just don't be like Saul, but be like David. I think there's just a little bit more than don't be like Saul and repent and turn to the Lord and be like David, a man after God's own heart. Because let's look at David, the victor's heart, and what he's going through. The second thing is David, the victor. And it's very clear that he is winning here. In the beginning of our chapters, we paused away from David's story to refocus on Saul. But where was David in chapter 27? Pastor Howard reminded us that he's living as an outcast last week. Why? Because he's running away from Saul. That's what we find in chapter 27, verse 1. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than I should escape to the land of Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, son of Maok, the king of Gath. And yes, last week, Pastor Howard preached this amazing sermon, living as an outcast but having hope. And if you have not heard it, please do. I think it's one of the best I've heard in this text. I'm not just saying that because I work here. Uh, Please do take time to listen to that. In his sermon, Pastor Howard also pointed at David's flaws in this as well. Not only he takes his refuge in Israel's sworn enemy, but notice what the text says. David said in his heart, And nowhere in chapter 27 is God mentioned or sought out. David is not seeking God's guidance nor protection here. He's not approaching God in humble obedience. He's not seeking God, seeking for his counsel. He sounds a lot like Saul here, maybe even worse than that. One can't even argue At least Saul tried, right? But David, he doesn't even seem to try. 
he speaks to himself. And David sounds a lot like Saul, desperate in seeking his own path. But okay, you might say, well, but David may have done that, but he did not disobey God's commandment, like Saul did. Saul sought out medium, which was outlawed in Deuteronomy. But David didn't do anything like that, right? Remember what Pastor Howard also pointed at in later verses of chapter 27? In verse 8, it says, Now David and his men went up and made raids against Geshurites, Gerzites, and Amalekites, and these were the inhabitants of the land of the old, as far as sure the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkey, the camels, the garments, and come back to Achish. David is supposed to take out all and everything in it, livestock and all. That's command, God's command according to Old Testament law, and not take anything. But here David takes the spoil. He took the sheep, the oxen, the donkey, the camel, the garments. And I think the Bible is very explicit in lining up everything he does to show that David is also breaking the law. He violates it. Add to this, David flat out lied, just like Saul does to the medium. David flat out deceives, just like Saul does to the medium, to save his own skin. And furthermore, just like Saul, who led us away his men, he leaves his trusted men under his authority. Why? All because he felt God did not have his back. Doing it godly did not have his own back. Now, if you really think about it, is David acting anything like the victor here? I guess in the eyes of the world, he is still the victor. He will become the king eventually. Even after all the failures, perhaps you could see it as growing pains. But this point has to be understood. That David, this great king of Israel, is just as flawed as Saul. One could even make an argument that he's even more flawed than Saul. If you put chapter 27 and 28 next to each other, there's a lot of parallels here. Both men are lost. They're facing threats against their life, no matter what the cause may have been. And both men are seeking their own path. As a man who has a lot riding on their actions, they got followers, they got the futures to think about, they got legacy to consider, and they lead them astray. And both of these guys absolutely violate God's commandment, God's own law, and going to the medium and taking what is not his. The question is, what's better? Honestly, if you're living at the time, and let's be bipartisan, right? If you're living at a time and not being political, but it may be better to say, man, Saul the king or David the king? Is it better for me to live under David's rule or is it better for me to live under the Saul's rule? Terrible choice, right? I don't want to live under Saul's rule because he's so egotistical. He does whatever he wants. I don't want to live under David's rule either. He rapes my like our, our, our woman and he kills them, right? One could even argue and say, hey, at least it's better to be in Saul's kingdom because he's not going to do anything like what David has done thus far. He's not going to betray us, right? It almost seems like it's better to be not in both of this guy's kingdom. So yes, if we're applying the distorted history that is told from the victor's perspective, we could say David is often too glorified. Because if I'm writing a history book on the greatest kings of Israel apart from Christ, a man after God's own heart, a type of Jesus' kingdom to come, all these failures do not measure up. He's not the king I want. And these are the details that you actually leave out writing for the victor. These are the details that you delete away, saying he is also far from the man after God's own heart. There is no hope in this kingdom. So the question that we have 
And we come to the final point is, why are all the flaws of David shared like this and contrasted and find similarities in both of these chapters? Why is the main reason that Saul falls? And why do we see David also falling? And we answer this as we remember, who is really telling this story? Who is teaching us the history of God's redemptive history we find in this chapter? Who is telling the story? These chapters we have been covering has uncovered quite a lot of Saul's failures, but also David's failures. And we haven't even gotten to the meat of his kingship yet. Yes, in today's chapter, it shows Saul failed and flawed, but both are flawed. Both are absolutely flawed. So who's telling the story? God is, isn't it? Because this is God's redemptive story. And what's important is that David just gets to be the main player in it. Again, what sets apart David from Saul and why David and not Saul? Nothing more simple than this, as we saw from last week again, that is highlighted in the chapters. God is with David, simple as that. God chose David, and God's focus is on David. That's the only difference that we find here. And in chapter 28, what we find is that God is not with Saul, though Saul is still all alone, separated, doomed. Yes, I'm not saying David is not a good person or good king. Right? David is absolutely obedient. David repents when confronted. This. There's so many things we ought to emulate and learn from David. David, unlike Saul, will eventually turn to God in coming chapters. Yes, David absolutely displays for us a model of what it means to be a man after God's own heart. But church, remember this. The bigger picture on all these chapters is not that David is a good person, good king that we ought to emulate, but the bigger picture in all of this chapter is that God is with David. God will never let go of David. God is persistently chasing after David, and he is telling this story to us. And that's what we actually say we believe, don't we? Especially us, the Reformed Church, we who emphasize God's sovereignty. We say even the ability for us to repent, to turn to the Lord, to seek after the Lord, the desire of wanting to do God's work, that hope only comes from God that does not come from us, including David here, unable to seek to save our own soul on our own. God's got to do something in the life of David. And we, again, we could take this in so many ways and argue in different ways, bring up a lot of apologetic points, but what I believe what this ought to do for us, the biggest takeaway of knowing that God is for David, the question that we must ask ourselves is, are you on God's side this morning? Not that it's God for you, but are you on God's side? Why? Because God is not on David's side because David is doing something great for God. Rather, it actually is really hard work for God to do this work with David. To be a man after God's own heart, it takes a lot of work to do that. You see, God's got to do so much just to save this guy's skin, right? God's got to help Samuel find him. God's got to help him defeat an enemy that is far greater physically than him in Goliath. God's got to protect him from Saul for 10 years. God's got to protect his family by orchestrating the history all the way going back to Ruth. God's got to send Abigail, as we saw, so that he won't sin in anger. Is that all? He should get it, but he doesn't. He doesn't seek out God in chapter 27. So what does God do? God chases him again and again and again so he can become a king. 
God's going to send the prophet when he becomes a king to rebuke him when he kills a friend and rapes a friend's wife. God's going to rescue him again from his own son's threat. God's going to send plagues when he goes straight and counts his own people. Man, there's a lot of work God's got to do just so that David can be a king. So it's not whether God is for you. The question is, are you on God's side or not? It's not whether you can get God to work for you this morning. It's rather, is God willing to put up with you? Is God willing to work in your life to transform you and to change you? Church, so many of us, including myself, we often play this game. As much as we say we are grace-based people, we love the Lord, we live for God's kingdom, but we find ourselves placing all our hope, all our hope in the accomplishments and our works. We place so much of our hope in human rulers, kings, celebrities, politicians, ideologies. We place so much of our hope in political factions. We place so much of our hope in who is or who isn't fighting for what is right and what is wrong. And as a result, oftentimes, we as Christians often become the very hindrance that drives people away from Christ. Rather than pointing others to Christ, we fight to keep people out rather than fighting for the afflicted and suffering ones. Please don't get me wrong. These issues are important. We ought to stand for the things we believe is biblical. We ought to vote with our conscience and conviction. Yet we also must be careful not to place so much of our faith in a system, in one policy, in one idea, in one candidate, and not play the fear-driven political game nor fight a culture war that we're not called to fight. Placing our false hope in political factions that do not work, it never did. Look at Saul's kingdom. It doesn't work. Look at David's kingdom. It did not work. Look at the kingdom under Solomon, supposedly wise king. Yes, expansion, but idolatry is rampant. does not work. So it goes back to this. Who is the true victor in this story? Whose story are we hearing Surely not Saul, but surely not David either. The true author of chapter 28, the true focus is in the work of God. This is a story that points to the greater hero that is coming, the greater hero who was saved. And herein lies a great contrast, the story of the gospel. This is grace. Saul is a rejected king, terrified his own doom, served by the servant woman, only to rise to go into the night facing his ultimate doom. David, a rejected hero, terrified by his own doom, seeks out his own comfort. But our true and righteous king, rejected by God for sin that he did not commit, continued to serve, breaking the bread and wine, comforting his disciples of the coming of the darkness that will last for a short while, after breaking the bread, went out singing a hymn, going to the Mount of Olives, so you and I can be on God's side. Church, who's telling the story? Whose story are you and I part of? This past Wednesday, we had a first week, and oh boy, I was, I was overwhelmed with our elders shared. And we're working um, on sharing this. If you missed it, you got to watch it. Our elders spoke in line with our letter, what we said our elders would stand, especially our non-black elders. And each of them, each one of them, Elder Bill's urgent plea and challenge for us, Elder Ibrahim's honesty and openness, and Elder Dave's personal journey and confession Man, each of them struck me so deeply. What an amazing testimony at that. You know what it did for me as an Asian American? 
You know, I too often have perpetuated everything they talked about. White supremacy. I'm in many ways more racist than I like to think. Man, I am more, I did more to perpetuate the racist ideology, ideology for my personal gain at the sake of others, to work the system, as you were saying. And my time here at Christ Central, and actually even before that, as many of you know, that I watched and learned from you from distance before I came here, and challenged and rebuked. But here at this church, there's a temptation that comes that we all face, especially during this time, in the church like ours, that we are here to do something about it. Right? The temptation says, you and I discussed it. We learned something about it. We do something now about it. And you think, wait, pastor, that's a good thing, right? Like, that's what we are called to do, isn't it? Well, absolutely. Again, we must. We have to. That's our call. But what I'm learning and what our elders highlighted this past first week is this. We as a church do not fight racism or stand for the black bodies or any biblical causes because it is the right thing to do or right time to do it. That's not the reason why we do it. Rather, we do all that because that's what God is doing. Do you know that? I believe God is anti-racist. I believe God loves black bodies and black lives matter to him as much as lives of unborn children. I believe God hates injustice. I believe God longs to see us love our neighbors. I believe God wants to see his kingdom come, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I believe God desires the church to reflect the heaven, every tribe, every nation, every tongue gathered to worship the Lord. I believe God wants his name to be known in this city, in this nation, to the ends of the earth. And church, that's why we, you and I must fight racism. That's why we stand for the racial justice. That's why we stand to act, to move, to serve, to preach, to die, so that God's message can be heard. Not because it is only right thing to do. Because that is what God is doing. We as a church not only want to be on the right side of history, as John Lewis once said, we want to be on God's side of redemptive history. Don't you want that? And that's where we begin. That's where we begin, not end. It's not that you get to do the right thing. Build your list of doing the correct things and show that you are for others. It's not to say, I go to this particular church. I have a black pastor. It's not to say that I listened. I read 10 books this week. It's not to say that I called a friend of mine. I cried. It's not to say that I believe in this. It's not about the label. It's not about ideology. Because I think you'll actually feel worse if you do it right. Right? The longer you hang around, the grace of the Lord. Right? Because your sin will be exposed more. You're going to be bad about it. You're going to feel rebuked. You're going to feel called out. You're going to find out that you're not that great after all. You know? You could read all the books you want. You could try to fight all you want. But you'll find deeply rooted in who you are is that you are a racist. Deeply rooted in your life is that you actually hate others. Deeply rooted in who you are that you are idolater. Deeply rooted in who you are at your core is that you do not love God. Oof. You're going to find out that you're more selfish, egotistical, more like Saul, more of a rapist and adulterer like David than you would like. It's not that we're calling you out. It's not that God puts labels on you. 
simply Bible calling sin, sin in your life. But again, this is grace. <laughs> That's the best place to be. This is the best place for you to receive that grace. Right? When you are totally damned under the weight of sin, where you cannot do anything about it, where you cannot claw your way out of your own sin, where you cannot cover yourself with number of books, number of conversations, number of ways to say, I am better, where you cannot claw your way out, accomplish all these things to say, I am a better person than yesterday. When you realize you're totally damned under the weight of sin, that you cannot do anything about it, that's when grace remains. That's when God is glorified in you and in this church. What I learned, church, throughout my short time here, is that not I'm here to do amazing things for the Lord, but God gets to do this work in your life. That God wants to do this work in my life. That God's going to change me. God's going to show me the darkest, deepest sins of my life. God's going to point at it. And God's going to break you, humble you, make you tired, make you want to run away, but also in the moment reminds you that he loves you. He loves you. He loves you so much to not let you go and to do all that work in your life. Church, that's God's grace. That's God's invitation for you. And if this is the case, oh, what joy to be fully exposed but embraced by the loving hands, loving arms of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray.